Imagine attending an ancient stone church in a picturesque Welsh countryside. The fire crackles while the psalms are read. What do these folks struggle with? Same things we do. (laughs) My guest today helps connect the common humanity between us all. It's a great delight to welcome Chris Webb, a former president of Renovare. I asked Chris about what he learned in his five years living in the States, traveling around the country, visiting churches. Chris offers some very helpful pictures of the American church, what we do well, what we could work on. My name is Nathan Foster, and welcome to the Renovare Weekly Podcast. Your accent feels stronger than it was when you were over here. It's more British stronger. Yeah, you've gotten, you've, did, did you lose a little bit when you were here? It's the C.S. Lewis effect. Yeah, I'm a little bit nearer to Oxford now than I was. <laughs> and I don't know. I'm, I, I, I can't hear it so well myself. But yeah, surely in five years over in Colorado, I must have, if, I don't think I picked up any Colorado accent, but it probably rubbed the edges off my own. <laughs> uh, you know, back in the old country. You're Welsh. Is that, is that accurate? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Does do Wales? Do you guys have a you have kind of a unique identity in the UK? Is that correct? Oh yeah, and this accent I've got is a very English accent because I a lot of my um, childhood was spent in England. Okay, and so it's it's not a very Welsh accent. Um, there's a very strong uh, sense of you know, Welsh identity and uniqueness and all this sort of thing. And and there are some. There's actually a range of Welsh accents as well that are that are very strong and distinctive accents. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Culturally, do you identify as Welsh? A, a, kind of British, really. A bit of both because all the family is it's the whole family background is Welsh. Okay. And we lived there for the whole of my adult life, except when we were in Colorado until now. And um, you know that we're both Sally and I Welsh speaking. The kids went through Welsh speaking schools, and so there's a lot of that. But my most of my childhood was spent in England. Okay. You know, it's like asking someone. Uh, I mean, I suppose it's a little bit like the dreamers thing, isn't it? You know, if you're born to a Mexican family, but you came over here to the states when you're six months old, and now you're eighteen, mm-hmm. what culturally, what do you feel like? Right. Well, you know, you grow up watching American TV in American schools in American malls, just like everybody else. So mm-hmm. that what you know, who are you? You you don't you don't feel very Mexican. I, I it's difficult for me. I don't feel very welsh some of the time yeah one foot in both worlds yeah it is mongrel that's me a mutt a mutt so chris you spent five years here as renovate president mm-hmm. and you've gone back tell, tell me what what have you been up to these years back in wales so when i came back i had um three years in uh right in the heart of middle of rural Wales in a sheep farming area, a place called Lampeter. It's, uh-huh. uh, uh, we used to tell people uh, it's in the middle of nowhere, but it is the middle of nowhere. So it was a little town, everybody for miles around. I mean, you know, for a, for a 45 minute hour drive around, this was where you came to. Uh, if you were going to, if you needed to go to the store, if you, um, uh, if you need to see a doctor or the police were based there, the schools were there, everything was there. Um, it was a town of 3000 people and that was the big smoke. So <laughs> for, 
fairly rural here and, and had its own university. A thousand of those 3,000 people were, uh, the best part of a thousand were students and staff and so on of a, of a university. Um, so it was, which was kind of weird it, it, um, it, in a good way, but an interesting place to live. Uh, so I was running uh, uh, five churches there. That's, um, I, I mean, I guess this is true in a lot of the states as well, that in, out in very sort of rural areas, you've often got clergy who are looking after multiple churches. Mm -hmm. And that's very typical over here in, in Britain. And, um, yeah, so I'm, I was looking after those five churches, a mixture of um, Welsh language and English language churches. Well, how would you work that? Would you every week be at a different one or would you go to each one multiple times? Oh, well, of those five churches, one had a monthly service. The other four had a weekly service. Okay. So the one that had a monthly service was out in the middle of a field, had no electricity, no water, no gas, no nothing, no utilities whatsoever. It was just a stone building in the middle of a field. And we would gather once a month. There was a small farming community around it. We'd gather once a month. All the music was done on a harmonium, which is, you know, like a um, sort of like a, uh, it's not like a piano. What's it like? It's like a tiny pipe organ that's powered by pedaling with your feet. <laughs> so you pedal back and forward, and then that blows the air through the pipes. And so, um, so it was a completely uh, person-powered um musical instrument and in the winter we would light little calagas heaters all around the church to heat the place and we had to do the service early enough in the afternoon that we could still see what was going on if we lit a few candles but otherwise <laughs> we did it too late in the day it was too dark and you couldn't you couldn't do anything in the church so that was just that was a really full of character uh, but the but the folks who live around it loved that little church so they would mm. come faithfully every single time and um every, every month we had the service it was great the other four churches we had a service every week, and so I, uh, as far as I possibly could, tried to be in every church every week. Mm -hmm. I did. We had a team of folks. Uh, we had a, a, t a couple of retired clergy, and we had some lay uh, leaders who were involved in leading worship and preaching and so on. And I did the absolute best I could to, to uh, really build up that team and stay out of their way and let them develop their own ministries. In fact, two of the lay leaders have since gone on uh, to be ordained themselves, so it mm -hmm. was part developing their ministry um but i thought it was important I, I was the pastor i was the parish priest when we had a service i felt it was important to be there um and so uh, sundays were long you were just going from church to church to church to church even if you're sitting through while somebody else is leading or somebody else is preaching or however we're working it um every sunday it was just uh, you know morning till evening back-to-back -back services and then all the conversation and, and meetings and so on in between them so um yeah, it was kind of, it was demanding. I bet. I bet. It builds up your stamina, you know. <laughs> uh, kind of idyllic, is it, in these old, small churches? Really? I, no. no. <laughs> there's, something, there's something really beautiful about it. Yeah, you get the chance uh, to worship in these. The, the buildings themselves, one or two of them were um, were medieval and were on sites that went back to the earliest days of the Welsh church in the sort of three, four hundreds, you, you could often wow. see. Um, so I can think of one of the churches in a place called Cillian, which where you could, um, you, you could see if you looked on an aerial photograph, but actually if you were on the ground, you could, you could see this just walking around the churchyard. It was a circular shaped churchyard, which was the, so the, the, the wall that went around the churchyard followed the line of the original boundary marker that was laid down 
you know, 1700 years ago, um, when the when the the trend then was to have these circular enclosures, um, and you could see where the um, original uh, church would have stood, and so, you know, you had this kind of link with with a very very ancient history. The building that was there was a uh, um, had been partly rebuilt by the Victorians, but they had incorporated into the wall a stone that they'd found in the churchyard that was. Um, it had a Latin inscription uh, that we think went back about 1500 years. It was an old uh, gravestone from the very earliest days of the church community there. So, it, yeah, I mean, there was something wonderful about that. And you look out the, uh, you come out the, well, you didn't look out the windows because they were all stained glass, but you, you come out the front uh, of the church and you're just looking out across this beautiful valleys, trees and, and river flowing through and little houses scattered here and there, sheep on all the uh, the hillside and everything. It was, it was wonderful, yeah. Um, but also not idyllic because people are people. <laughs> and, and so, you know, wherever you go, people have difficulties and struggles and life is hard and you are, you know, um, it's, it's very easy to see that if you're in a very deprived urban area where it's all gritty and nasty and in your mm. face, and, you know, you can, there's a homeless person sitting on the corner or there's the drug dealer over there. Or you can see the deprivation, you can see the pain, you can see the struggle and, and it's very in your face. In a rural area like that, it tends to be a lot more hidden. Mm. And you can hike through, you you hike through, you know, and you think, oh, it's so lovely in the little cottages over here, and it must be beautiful to live here, and people's lives must be so magnificent, and they're just not. It's just, it's hard, mm. and for many people, very lonely, sure, and isolating. So they're dealing with these problems on their own. They're not part of a community. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, you know, as a as a uh, as a place to live, it was lovely. As a pastor, it's hard, sure. hard work. Sure. Yeah. It's interesting how I I need these places to be perfect. I like the visual of it and and all the kind of fantasy or fairy tale of what life there might be like. But uh, that's actually kind of helpful and disturbing a little bit to hear that pretty similar to other contexts. Yeah, yeah. So after three years there, uh, I now moved on to where I am now. For the last three years, I've been working in a retreat centre right in the heart of England. So this is the, uh, apart from the five years I had in Colorado, this is the first time in my, uh, um, it, well, my adult life and my ministry that I've lived over the border from Wales. The <laughs> uh, traitor who's crossed to the other side. Uh, so I'm right in the heart of England in this absolutely magnificent retreat house called Lawn Abbey, um, which again is very, very old foundation, goes back to, uh, actually goes back to the year 1119. So in two years wow. time, we're going to celebrate our 900th anniversary uh, and have a big sort of jamboree and loads of events and so on. Um, uh, but that was a real change. So the, the place I'm working in now, it, it, like my previous parish, is right out in a very, very remote kind of rural area. Um, and actually, you were talking about it, you know how important it was to you that there are these idyllic places in the world. The, Lord Abbey kind of is. It, mm-hmm. it, was, it was founded as an Augustinian monastery and then became, after the Reformation with Henry VIII, when he closed down all the monasteries, it became a private house. But then back in the 1950s, somebody bought it privately um, and presented it as a gift to the Diocese of Leicester, the, the Anglican Diocese of Leicester, mm-hmm. uh, for use as a retreat house and a conference centre and so on. And so for the last 60 plus years, we have been able to uh, been able to offer that to the to not only to the Anglican Church, but to the wider church and community. Um, 
And it is it is beautiful. I mean, if you think of a sort of smaller version of Downton Abbey, uh, <laughs> what I often think when I'm when I'm driving in in the morning, I come over the hilltop and look down and think, "Wow, you know, there's worse places in the world to be working than this." <laughs> very peaceful, very beautiful. Uh, of course, in t- again, in terms of ministry, it's a more a more of a mixed picture because uh, it, it is a beautiful place to come and be on retreat. Um, I, I love working there. I love that we, that we are involved in a lot of retreat, leading quiet days, prayer, silence, pastoral care. So, I mean, I love that. It just fits me like a glove. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it is also where a place where people will come to crash and burn, mm-hmm. to not too find a point on it, or, or when they're about to crash and burn, a little bit of both. And so uh, we have a lot of people who kind of wash up on our doorstep who, who are in real difficulty and real, really struggling. And so behind the scenes of this beautiful uh, place, there is a, there's a, a lot of um, emergency room care mm-hmm. going on, I must, particularly for clergy, particularly for people in ministry. They are in situations that are very isolating, often being in le- uh, church leadership. Um, they've got to have everything together. They've got to have a, a huge um, spiritual resources, m- uh, mental and emotional resilience, physical strength and stamina, you know, to be able to push through year after year. Um, and they, they find they just haven't got it. And, and a, you know, a year goes by and it's great and five years and it's OK and 10 years and it's really hard. And, and as it goes on and on and on, 20, 30 years, they they struggle and they struggle. And they the people that they in theory should be able to look to for support in the structures of the church around them are very often also their bosses. Mm. I mean, you know, in a, an Anglican setup, it might be your, your archdeacon or your, your bishop or, you know, is somebody in the hierarchy. Um, uh, I guess in another context, you might think about your associate pastors and your deputy pastors and your senior pastors and your son. And they're all pastors, right? So mm-hmm. if you've got problems, you you got to talk to. But then they're also your boss. And, you know, if you're thinking, well, it would be quite nice at some point in a 40 year career of ministry to be able to, to to move into another position, to be able to take on extra responsibilities and so on. You've got to keep on the right side of your boss. So you're struggling, you've got problems, you put a lid on it. Mm-hmm. a lot of people who turn up and, and we found that they've been putting a lid on it for years mm-hmm. and they, they just let it go yeah yeah so it's a hospital there is a side of our work that is like that yeah but so on the one hand we have people turn up who are in crisis and we're dealing with them like it's a hospital on the other hand one of the great joys for me of the job uh, is that we quite often have people who come because they are at a point of significant transformation, a sort of breakthrough in their spiritual lives. God is doing something in their lives and they sense that and they think, I want to go away on retreat and, and kind of mm. pray this through and think this through and so on. And, and so I kind of feel it's unfair in some ways. There's somebody out there, there's a, been you know, a, 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 a minister, a pastor, maybe a team of clergy in some church who've been working with this person in their life, maybe for a few years now, you know, and have been gently planting seeds in them, praying with them, pastoring them, caring for them. This person's about to have this huge breakthrough with God, and they come to us, and we're all on our doorstep, and then we send them home saying, that was great, wonderful, thank you for that, go and tell your minister. (laughs) 
remember when I was in ministry, uh, there was this guy, there were two of us working together in a church. And we had this uh, guy who was obviously on a journey of coming to faith. And we nurtured and nourished that for a period of about nine months. Um, and he was so close to giving his life to Christ, so close all the time and never quite there. He went away on a holiday to Norway, visited a Viking church. His ancestors had been uh, Vikings. They visited this Viking church, this old wooden uh, Norwegian church. He came back to us. He said, I walked in the door and I knew that God was real. And I gave my life to Christ. And we said, hallelujah. But after he'd gone, the two of us looked at each other and said, that is so unfair. <laughs> I mean, for months we wanted to be there when it happened so i kind of feel now i'm on the other side of that i i i sometimes have conversations with people i go away after an hour or two so buoyed up with the breakthrough they've made and so guilty <laughs> because you know somebody else planted and watered and i got to reap the harvest so yeah, yeah. as it should be sometimes it that sounds real healthy to me <laughs> yeah Hey, I have a question for you. You you have a, a really interesting perspective in terms of the context in which you come from before you came over to the States as a rural parish priest, um, and then being here for five years, traveling around the country, being in all these churches, and then uh, now back in this, you know, kind of retreat setting, seeing different ministry pieces. What did you mm. what did you notice about the States? Uh, was six years ago in your time here. What did you see in the church um, that might be helpful for us to hear? So, I, I mean, I was living in Colorado for five years and over that time traveling over quite a large uh, part of the States in the end and, and got to see, um, because Renovari works in such a diverse ecumenical context, you know, got to see mm -hmm. a range of different churches. Um, which in part makes that difficult to answer because I saw so much and so much that was new and fascinating and unfamiliar to me coming from a British context. But um, but if there were th things that stood out uh, sort of across the board, um, I, I could I could name quite a few. But but here here are two that really struck me and still stay with me. Um, uh, and I'm going to be all good and balanced here because one's good and one's not so great. Okay. <laughs> um, but, to, but just to pick out those two. So let, let me start with the one that was um, that was great. Mm -hmm. uh, the generosity. Mm. I mean, the, I, I still find myself from time to time overwhelmed uh, by the, the generosity of uh, of American Christians. Uh, the generosity uh, within the church, and I'm talking about, yes, generosity of, of spirit and generosity of people with their time and, and energy and so on, but, but specifically generosity with money. Hmm. Um, the, the way in which uh, churches would talk very openly about their financial situation and their needs and so on, and, and time and time again I saw people just stepping up and saying, oh, okay, well, we want to develop this youth ministry and we need a significant amount of money to do that. Well, we're just going to get together and make that happen. And people would bring out their checkbooks and write large checks mm -hmm. uh, for them large. You know, I, that's what I mean about the generosity that, um, that, that people would give what, what for them represented significant proportions of their income and say, this is important to us. The church matters. The gospel matters. We're going to make this happen. Um, and, and I saw that within the life of the church. And then I saw that going beyond the life of the church uh, I, I don't know what's going on uh, at the moment, you know, um, as we're having this conversation, we're right in the wake of these uh, hurricanes tearing through Texas and Florida mm -hmm. and so on. 
Um, I don't know what's going on, but my guess is that up and down the country, there are Christians getting together in churches and, and raising significant amounts of money from their own pockets mm-hmm. to say, we're, we're going to do something about this. Um, and sending people overseas, sending people on mission trips, involved in development work, I just saw again and again and again and again, there was a, a remarkable um, uh, kind of generosity and, and an expectation that uh, that God will provide. But one of the ways that God has will provide is that he has provided we've got this money and we're mm. going to do something good for them so that was really uh heartening and um i think if there was one thing that that i learned that the american church taught me um, um, christians from the united states taught me to be generous mm. so that i carry that back with me and i try to be that person now when i'm so in, in british churches it's not quite the same there's no one saying that there's no generous people but we tend to have to work harder to raise the money. People are a little bit more reluctant. And, you know, we like to do fundraising out in the community. So if we can do a bake sale rather than just writing a check, we, we'll do that. You know, see if we can't give some, get somebody else to give us the money. Um, I, I'm much more ready now to say, no, wait, I've, you know, we've got this. Mm-hmm. Let's do this. So that would be a real positive. Um, cool. If there was one thing to that I saw that constantly amazed me that was be a more negative thing, I, I was just astounded over and over again uh, by the fearfulness mm. of so many Christians in, in, in churches in the States. Um, fearfulness about all kinds of things. Um, uh, that This sort of, it's, it was a startling for somebody to come from the British context, from, from a European, I guess, context where the, the churches tend to be so much smaller, so much weaker, struggling. There's a lot of church decline. The influence of the church in society is very small, so on and so on. Um, uh, the, 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 the secularization of society in general is just uh, rampant, you know, and, and, and um, it's very difficult in the public square even to talk about God in any serious way anymore. People are just not able to hear it. Mm-hmm. Um, younger generations, you have to work really hard at that. Uh, and then to step into the American context where, uh, where, where God is still very much a subject in the public square, for, for all the separation of church and state stuff, religion is very much a public issue and a public matter. The churches, there are many large, strong, well-supported, well-funded, well-equipped uh, churches with, with significant ministries in every city uh, spread across all the states. Uh, the tremendous resources available. There is a um, that that the kind of the the ingrained, inbuilt, natural American optimism. You know, the kind of <laughs> get up and do things uh, thing. I, I would often say to people, you want to understand the difference between Britain and the States. Uh, you you think of the day after the Louisiana Purchase. There's four people stood looking over the Mississippi. There's the the two Americans who are looking over the Mississippi, going at the great vast wilderness beyond, and they're saying to themselves, "We can do this." And there's the two Brits going, oh, that looks awfully big. I, I, maybe we should go home and have a cup of tea. You know, <laughs> the Americans are up for it, right? And and yet there's this incredible narrative in so much the American church of the, the church is declining, the church is disappearing, we're all in trouble, society is going to hell in a handbasket, um, you know, nobody listens to the Ten Commandments anymore, we're not a moral society, we've lost our compass, we've lost our way, da 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 da, da you know, that, and the whole thing is that, you know, that somehow the church is having to fight a rearguard action against the dark forces of Satan which have overtaken this whole of society in the US, and, and I've got to say, you come in as an observer from the outside and you think, 
you've got to be kidding me. I mean, really, theologically, you have nothing to be afraid of anyway. I think, wasn't it Dallas who was fond of saying something like, you know, we are our father's sons and daughters in our father's world. You know, we have nothing to fear. But but really, compared to most countries in the world, the American church has so little to fear mm-hmm. in the society around it. And I would just love to see it shake off that, because that fearful narrative then has such an impact on the way that people talk about Christ and about the gospel. And it becomes very antagonistic, very confrontational, very us versus them. Uh, um, it, it doesn't carry that note of hopefulness and, mm-hmm. and joy, confidence and um, you know, that you want to see uh, in in those who are heralding the coming of the kingdom. And and I just think, oh, that is such a shame. Mm. Um, there, there really could be a gift that the church could give to the wider society there, that it's harder for, for some in other contexts to be able to do. Um, the, the American church could be speaking with a hopefulness, confidence and joy into American culture and society in a way that, for example, North Korean Christians haven't got a hope of doing. Mm. North Korean Christians have a reason to be fearful. Right. But, but you know, your average Christian in, in, in Texas or, or Florida or, or uh, you know, up in Seattle, or they, they, there really is not much to fear. Mm. So, us, yeah, that would be my two things. That's really helpful. Give us a remedy. What could we do? What should we do? Well, I, don't, I wouldn't want to see a remedy for the generosity. <laughs> You know, keep giving. So I, I, I think that's there is really something that a lot of us could learn from. Do you know the only other place where, and this is intriguing to me, but the only other place where I've seen generosity on that scale uh, is in the churches in in sub-Saharan Africa, huh. the churches in some of the worst poverty in the world, where, where people have that same generosity of spirit. So it's not about wealth. It's a, you know, it is about what's going on in the heart. Mm-hmm. Um, wouldn't want to see any remedy for that at all. You know, for the fearfulness thing, that's something that has, I think, some some deep cultural roots in it somewhere. I'm not sure it can be fixed very easily, but I used to wonder why churches that were so large and well-funded and so on, you know, would possibly be so fearful. But I don't know that the remedy is to go back and to sort of say, oh, look, there are lots of us uh, and we've got 45 people on our ministry staff of our giant church and we've got so much money and so many programs and sort of pat ourselves on the back and then right. saying, okay, no, no we, we'll be confident. We'll be confident. I, I think it would, it would just be great if more churches were able to find that confidence and hopefulness in, in the gospel and mm. in God. Um, uh, and, and, and then kind of work out of that really, uh, again that sort of idea of Dallas is that if we're the if we're our father's children in our father's world we have nothing to fear mm-hmm. um that that when when Jesus talked about the kingdom of God he didn't say I've got this great idea called the kingdom of God would you like to try and make it work and he didn't <laughs> say I've got this wonderful idea of the kingdom of God but I don't know whether I can make it work or not I'm going to give it a go um if you're in with me it's a big risk but why not come along for the ride Jesus said the kingdom of God is at hand the kingdom of god is here the kingdom of god is coming whether you like it or not mm-hmm. I and mean, what you get to decide is how you respond to that but the kingdom of god is coming now when the if the church really sees itself as the people who said we are all in for this kingdom of god mm-hmm. then we ought to be brimming with confidence mm-hmm. it's there's an inevitability about the coming of this kingdom whatever the world looks like right now mm-hmm. there is an inevitability about the coming of this kingdom that ought to make us feel really good 
you know, we ought to be able to stand up and in the face of any circumstances and say, well, you know, it may look wretched right now, but we know that God is here and we know that God is in this. Now, we do not have reason to be fearful. You know, I'm going to pause our interview here and pick it back up in another episode. Actually, this interview serves as a really helpful prelude to Chris's new book, The God-Soaked Life, which happens to be the first book we're working with this season in the book club. Hey, and if you sign up, we'll ship you a copy. You can check out our website for more info. This is one you'll want to read. It's a really good book. Hey, thanks for listening, and have a great week.